Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Greg Ugui, co-founder of ThinkNum, a web platform used primarily by investors and large, fast-growing tech companies to wield the web as data to outsmart competitors. In this episode, we go through how this company got started and what the initial version looked like, types of data sets that Greg and his team are using to help give companies an advantage, how they got their first customers and their experience going through 500 startups, raising more than $12 million in venture capital, why they started KG Base as well as a media company, the funny story around getting kicked out of WeWork, you have to hear this one, and how Greg looks at hiring, how he decided to get into this industry in the first place, and much, much more. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure give clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado, here is Greg Ugui, co-founder of ThinkNum. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Justin. I'm happy to be with you. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time and excited to, to talk about your journey so far, uh, which has been pretty incredible. And for people who aren't familiar with, with ThinkNum, what are you doing with this company now, Greg? Essentially, ThinkNum, we crawl the web for data like a search engine would. And then we structure it into a database that we give access to our clients so they can query the entire web, like they will a spreadsheet, a CSV, or a database table. And with that as well, who are kind of the main users or or audience? I'm just curious. Sure. So when we initially started, I'll say for the first year of traction, it was mostly hedge funds. Then we expanded to investment banks. And now our biggest clients are tech companies, that, like large, fast-growing tech companies. That's awesome. Makes, it makes a lot of sense. And there's so much that's needed around the data to have an edge with other companies. And I want to take it back. So how did this get started in the first place, Greg? So I was a strat at Goldman. So what that means is essentially you sit down with traders and salespeople on the trading floor, but you don't actually take risk. Instead, you build tools and you move data around to help traders and salespeople make better decisions. So there was actually someone who used to be a strat who left and went to Facebook and wrote a book, and he described us as fluffers in a porn production. <laughs> Girl, we, like, it, it caused a big uproar. But essentially, we don't actually take risk. You build tools for traders to take risk. And from that then, that experience, you were doing that at Goldman, and how did you decide? Okay, let's make let's make this let's make this company to do more with the data and have our own company around that. How did that 
get started then, Greg? Sure. So essentially, we had when you're Goldman, we had a lot of like you know data providers like let's say Bloomberg or Thomson Reuters that they give you a lot of market data. So think of it like stocks trading, stock prices, bond prices. But the data we really needed was information from the web. So I wanted to know how home prices doing in Florida, like yesterday, are home selling or not. And things were sort of going online and we needed that data. And my co-founder was in a hedge fund. He was running into the same problem. At Goldman, I actually built a couple of crawlers and I got yelled at a couple of times because we're not supposed to crawl the web. <laughs> but I was sort of obsessed with this problem and we really needed this data. and We figured more people will need this data. We didn't know how large, but we just set out to build build companies to solve this problem. Using that as well, so understanding that was kind of what he wanted to build, crawl the web to have data that's useful and relevant for people. How did you decide that you want to start this with your co-founder? What was the conversation around that with Justin uh, in terms of, hey, let's let's build this together? Because finding a co-founder can be such a, a difficult task. How did you guys decide that, hey, we, we want to work together? Sure. So I had known Justin since since college, so since like we were both basically kids. So Justin Zen, just because they're too young. <laughs> and I've known Justin since. And I, so I made a list of everybody and he was sort of my ideal person. So it's very much like, and it's the, a very important relationship. It's as important as maybe getting married, like, you know, picking the right co-founder. So, he, and he was more interested in starting a company. I was more interested in technology and working with the internet. I didn't really want to build, use Goldman's internal like strat anymore, strat tools, slang and things like that. I wanted to work with Python and solve this problem of indexing data from the web. And he was more interested in the business aspect of it. And we, have, as I said, we'd been friends for a while. So we knew each other. We knew we did great work. And so it was a very natural discussion. And from that then, understand that you want to work together and you knew the problem you wanted to solve. Take me through the initial product. I know you mentioned it was for more so hedge funds, but what was the initial product you guys end up building as a, the version one per se? So I'll say initially, the, very initially, we sort of made the thing more complicated than it needed to be. In other words, we were building kind of like a spreadsheet. We focused a lot on the front end on how people actually analyze the data. And what we realized is, well, people didn't care all about the bells and whistles. They really were just focused on one button that just pulls in live data. And then they analyzed it pretty much outside our platform. So we just really threw away everything else after like 12 months of work and just focused on that one use case of getting them clean, timely data and not worry so much about how they analyze it. And that worked out really well for us. With that, what was the kind of initial data sets or some of the things you were pulling in uh, in those early days as well in terms of the, the data, actual data you were using? I know you mentioned crawling the web. That can be a lot of different things. I'm just curious as to what kind of some of the initial things were, data sets, et cetera, that you were using early on. Sure. So things like stores opening and closing. So, so that was you know important. People want to know, like essentially, if, if you have a, let's say you start selling a product, like if it starts picking distribution across Walmart and things like that, they want to be able to track that. They want to be able to track, you know, product pricing. So is Lululemon like giving like discounts? The, even things like employee, this came a little later, but employee reviews that when, essentially when a company is doing well, employee, you know, employees go online with various platforms and they'll give either good reviews or bad reviews. So when it's doing well, they usually give good reviews because they're getting paid, they're optimistic. When it's going badly, they'll give sort of bad reviews. 
So these were things like hedge funds used to track manually in the past. They used to track product pricing, store openings, and you know employee feedback. But they used to do that mostly by calling. It used to be something called channel checking. So now it was going online. So it was just sort of mapping work they originally used to do in the real world. So now that economic activity is moving online, how do you track that? And it was really talking to clients that have been doing this for 20 years and they'll give you good ideas and you take that and you put it on your product. You mentioned that it took kind of in the first year you you built something that then you had to basically scrap it all then. Was it just you and Justin uh, initially or how soon did you start bringing on more people to build out this this product? Right. So for the first year with the first sort of iteration we had, it was just Justin and I, right? And yeah, it was just Justin and I was very lean. We literally, we worked in our apartment and it's just, and eventually we got into like 500 startups. And then after that, we brought on, you know, two engineers, Alan and Vojto. And thankfully they're still with us today, but it was really just Justin and I. So Justin was handling all of the business and I was handling all of the coding, like back end, front end and design. How did you decide that you wanted to go through an accelerator at that time for, for this company? I mean, obviously, there's many options around getting funding early on or going through an accelerator, even in an incubator. How did you decide on 500 startups? Sure. So we sort of we looked through various accelerators and like this, essentially, we, we felt like there were areas where we were strong and there were areas where we were weak. So it was 500 startups. They focused a lot on distribution, which was important to us. It was something that we didn't. Like we didn't really feel play to our strengths, you know. Justin was more like a finance. He studied finance in Princeton, and he worked in a hedge fund. And I, I wrote code. So five minutes startups they really helped like fill in gaps for us. And also like they, there's a community aspect to five hundred startups. It's, you know, they say five hundred strong, and that vibe was important to us. With the distribution side, you're, you're saying I just say they were able to help you really get to reach more customers through that, or what do you mean exactly? So I won't necessarily say they helped you reach more customers, but they sort of taught you. So they are strong in distribution, so they have seen, so they focus a lot on like sort of guiding you and helping you and giving you advice around distribution. Ultimately, you have to do it yourself, but they bring in a lot of experts that are good at either marketing or sales and how do you hire salespeople or how do you, what kinds of, how do you structure your marketing budget and things like that? Gotcha. And and in those early days as well, and like I said, I'll bring it back to the present time over time, but I'm curious as to how are you then actually acquiring the, the first customers, the first users? I know you mentioned more so towards hedge funds. What was that process like for you guys in the early days, the first year or so uh, of actually getting you know your initial people to trust you and, and use this platform that you're building? Sure. I'll say it, it, it was very much hand-to-hand combat. <laughs> so... So, so the one thing, one you know, warning I give people like you know, when you work in a big sort of bank, the brand name, people want to talk to you, and it's hard psychologically to separate that <laughs> that it's the brand that they care about the Goldman Strat. They don't really care about Greg Ubi. And when you leave, like you, you, it affects your very identity. So in other words, it was hard, like you know, trying to get talk to people. Like I used to go to hedge, like you know, ping hedge funds or people from college or any try and get intros to people, go to their office, give them a demo. For the first 10 users, I was like going across Midtown and giving people demos, taking them out to coffee, you know, showing them that literally that was it. (laughs) What were some aspects of the the pitches or the the meetings you're going through that, you know, convinced these people to actually join in terms of the platform? What were some of those things of, of the pitch or aspects of the pitch? Right, so I'll, I'll say really the, the like what we focused on is we focused on sort of the wow aspect. 
So literally the word wow. <laughs> so when you show, essentially you get an idea from one really smart hedge fund that, hey, you should be tracking XYZ. And when they start discounting a lot, I know they're having a bad quarter. And then you have that in your product now that you have that live data. And somebody has been spending like, like literally like a hundred hours <laughs> pulling that data every quarter. So now when you show him, you can just pull that from the web live, you get like, wow. And then he wants to use it. So really that's it. So you just focus. So it's almost like buying at that early stage is an emotional decision where you really have to show them something that is 10x better than what they expected. And then they're like, I just have to have it. And then with that as well, so that was how you got your first initial customers. And you mentioned you're working for the the kind of first year or so before... um... We can scrap things and kind of change things around at least. And going through 500 startups, then raising your million dollar seed round uh, in 2014, you you hadn't been a founder before previously. How did you approach that? How did the fundraising go in that that first round? Sure. So for us, um, fundraising was pretty boring. <laughs> so, <laughs> like we were sort of doing like our first pitch it was kind of like you know you sort of structure so your first one is more like a practice pitch you're hoping to build up momentum and the first guy just said yes so literally the day before the 500 startups demo which is when you meet a lot of investors we announced like we had just closed around so for us it was just like you remember at that time as i said we didn't really we didn't have customers and we didn't even have a product that had product market fit because this was before we sort of pivoted to data this was still early so we were just like, let's get to the work of building a company. And we got basically the terms we wanted early. Just, I, I think it was luck. So I got introduced to some to these investors through someone else that I'd known. And they, they had invested in them and they made an intro and we pitched, you know, peer ventures and they said yes. And that was pretty much it. That's awesome. And and from there then, so going through, you know, continuing on with the story. So you raised the million dollars and then you have some validation, obviously, from that. How did you grow the company, especially after you kind of pivoted or scrapped what your initial model was of sorts, how'd you grow from there? Because obviously you, you grew over time to, you know, I think I said read your profitable since 2016. So not long after that, two years after that, how'd you grow through that phase? Sure. So it was um, just talking to more clients. As you get more data, you get more clients, as you get more logos, more people it's sort of crossing the chasm. As you get enough logos, basically it's a tight knit community. So think of so it's a tight-knit community, so everybody, they care not really about the tool at some point, but they care about what other people like them, their peers are doing. So you get that word of mouth, and they come in. And so so that was primarily how we did it. We just get there, get some happy users, and other people that they talk to or the industry will hear about your tool, hear about, and then they come in, and you sort of grow like that. Very early on, that sort of works. And at that time too, what was the the business model in terms of figuring out how you're going to charge this, making money off of this, what the pricing was going to be? I'd love to hear more around that. I'm sure it's potentially evolved since, but especially in that time, what was the business model behind it? So it was very much like, you know, think of like a Bloomberg feed. So it's a SaaS business model. You pay like, at, at that time, it was literally $200 per month. So we tried to make it as cheap as possible. Our view is over time, like now it's now 19600 per year. So it has gone up a little bit, but we still try to make it as cheap as humanly possible. Our view is if you see all the data on the internet, think of it like a matrix. On one side, you have all data sets. As you said, they're very different stores, products, social data. On another axis, 
you have all the people that need that data, investors, operators, you know, hedge funds, VCs, analysts. And if you are supposed to build one canonical representation of that data in a database that everybody shares. So if it costs you, let's say, $10 to build that canonical data set, because everybody shares it, you can sell it to them for, let's say, $1. And you're selling to like 20 people, so you get $20. But to them, it's much cheaper. So that means we want you need to build something really excellent because you need to pass the threshold for the most, essentially, highest quality a person wants. And at the same time, you want to have as make it as cheap as possible so you can get it to as many people as possible. So it was important for us to sort of keep it cheap, to reduce that friction from price and try to grow from there. Yeah, and obviously you grew a lot since then. And then even 2019, raising the you know $11.6 million uh, Series A at that point, so you'd been profitable since 2016, so then three years later you raised a, a round. Take me through then what was the the reason at that time for, for raising and how that kind of changed what you guys did at Thinkdom? Sure. So the way we sort of think of the business, maybe it's... It, Sort of, it's kind of old school. We sort of view it as ultimately you have to win your markets. So you see a problem in the market, you build a product for that, and then ultimately whoever wins that market will have created a lot of value in the world. And whoever comes in second, it doesn't really kind of matter. <laughs> so the move is to win the market. So it's not necessarily to grow as fast as possible right now. It's not necessarily to have as much own as much of the company as possible, but it's really understand strategy of. How do I win this market in the long run? So at some point, we're building, we're validating. We, we had a product we have de-risked in many ways. We're sure we had product market fit. And now how do you scale? How do you get this to as many people as possible? And how do you essentially win the market? So that's really why we raised Lump.6. It's kind of like fuel to get to the next level. You need to do that. Yeah, and really owning the market, like you said, especially in this particular thing where if you have the data, you have the data. Like there's not, obviously there's, there's a, there can be multiple companies and multiple competitors within a space, but in this particular instance, like it does matter a lot. I'm curious as then from, from there, obviously you, you're trying to grow and develop, you know, continue to develop your financial modeling tools as well. You started KG base. Take me through how that got started. Sure. So it's sort of expanding sort of the problem as we see it. So a lot of what we do is we pull in data and then you have to structure that data. Data on the web, anybody can just create a, a data model and start selling stuff. They can name things differently. For instance, you can have stores. Somebody calls it lat length. Somebody calls it latitude, longitude. A lot of what the ultimate tool business analysts need is sort of a knowledge graph that sort of standardizes all of that data so they can query it. So we did that with one specific instance for data from the web, working with a lot of clients, especially the corporations. They wanted to sort of structure their own data. They wanted, they had internal data that they had through some processes and they had that already in sort of a knowledge graph and they were connecting it to our data, but they didn't have a no code tool that helped them do that. So it's actually a friction for us to sell to them where they will rely on their engineers to structure to sort of pull in the data and merge it with their data. And internally, to structure data as well, we were also building similar tools. So we sort of took a lot of internal tools we had to solve a problem our clients had, and we sort of built it to KGBase, where it's a no-code knowledge graph tool. So if I wanted to put in my own data, connect my own data that's already in a knowledge graph, like Neo4j, and sort of structure it into a knowledge graph, this tool helps you do that. And obviously that makes it easier then for your customers 
How has that changed in terms of your kind of customer acquisition strategy today? How are people finding out about ThinkNum and the things you're doing at this point, you know, in 2020, this is you know, six, seven years after you started. How does that kind of look today? Sure. So there are sort of two things that work for us. Um, I'll, I'll sort of list them, then I'll explain them a little bit. So one of them is we have like a, a media platform we built called Business of Business. I'll get into that. It's similar to content marketing. And then the second thing is BDRs. So the first thing is, while we were actually sort of growing, we were at WeWork and we we put we crawled WeWork's internal directory, so we were able to tell how many users came in and how many users left, and we wrote a blog post talking about their churn and how it wasn't a great company, and essentially we got kicked out. We got forty five minutes to pack our things, and get the hell out. <laughs> it, it got a lot of coverage, and many people picked it up and said writing about oh WeWork tenant gets kicked out for crawling. And then, so you realized a couple of things. One is that with our data, we can write interesting stories that people care about. And in this case, actually turned out to be factual. For instance, there's a documentary coming out that features like my co-founder. There's a book about WeWork that talks about that episode. Anyway, so we decided that that's an opportunity. If you can create that kind of content, you can get a lot of eyeballs, attention for the value of business data from the web. But its second aspect is maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Maybe we should have professional. <laughs> So we don't face of our landlords. Yeah. So we sort of built out like a media team and we've been growing that. Where they, It's called businessofbusiness.com where we take our data, we take stories and we write about business and that sort of drives eyeballs to our thing. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is as you build like enterprise tools like KGBs, as you mentioned, uh, and as you just grow the relationship with your customers, you can now afford to hire like professional BDRs go out, connect to people, understand their problems, and sort of sell to them. Today as well then, Greg, where is most of your time personally spent within the business? So I'll say, I'll say recruiting, problem solving, like things go wrong, <laughs> and then you get <laughs> and also product, so sort of guiding our product decisions. So that's like, but I'll say the main thing is really almost like, you know, 15 minutes of time is sort of like recruiting and to some extent, managing people you currently have. But as I said, another thing is, you know, problems just come up that you can solve. And, you know, finally, I'll say product. And on that note of recruiting then, so how have you gone about that, especially nowadays, like I said, seven years in, so you've come a long ways and raised a series A. How are you looking at recruiting now as other entrepreneurs who are building their businesses? Ultimately, you're building business, you're going to hire more and more people. I'm just curious as to your process or how you've gone about that, Greg. Yeah, so so that's one thing. Like, I'm still trying to understand myself. Because <laughs> I'll tell you, when we first started, it was actually a little bit easier. Like, I don't know why. It doesn't quite make sense to me. But um, now, it's in, in many ways, it's just very challenging. I do think there is a, we are in an environment where, like, the large tech companies are sucking up a lot of the talent. Yeah. And, um, we, we got lucky, as I said. We had, like, Alan Vojto. And, like, you know, Vojto brought in a, a couple of people he knew. So that's the best way to get people. Um, but for me, like I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. Like, but it's, right now, I'm still in the hand-to-hand combat mode where I like find people like really that I think could be really great. I don't think you can. We're not on the stage where you can find people that have just done this before for like ten years. Like, you, <laughs> you you have to like sort of bet on people that have exceptional qualities, but they are maybe unproven, and then let them. So you have to take some risk, and that is risk we are willing to take, where we are willing to take like the inexperienced risk but we're not willing to take all that kinds of risk. Um, and that's how we sort of think of it. 
How do you think of it from a, a culture perspective as well at ThinkNome in terms of the people you're, you're bringing in or, or how you decide to kind of how they fit in the culture or how they're going to help grow the culture or improve upon the culture you already have? Right. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so that's, a, that's, a, a, yeah, that's a, a great point. And I, I do think when we first started, it was maybe it was m- maybe slightly more straightforward where you are sort of involved in so many decisions and kind of like your impact on the culture is just much bigger. Like literally it was four of us in our apartments. <laughs> yeah. So it, like in many ways, when you wake up, is when you have lunches, whatever, without even saying it, it just naturally happens. Versus when you grow to a certain point, let's say over like 30 people, you start having like, you know, it's different from you. What you built is different from you. And many people contribute to that. And it's something I valued more. Like, so certain people are like culture carriers. They have multiplier effects. And that's what ultimately you're looking for. So you're not going to be in every meeting and you're not going to be there all the time. So it, it really, culture is really defined by what, people say when you're not there and how they act on their own. Um, so it's something we pay attention to. Like how do you find like cornerstone culture carriers and how do you double down on them, bet on them, promote them? So yeah, that's how we think. Yeah. And one of the things I just want to kind of step back a little bit here. I, I had watched an interview you did, I think it was at Princeton uh, a, while, a little bit back, but you talked more about your, your kind of your story and how you even got into Goldman, I'd love to hear more about that. You know where you're from and how you decided to go to Goldman in the first place, and kind of take from there. I'll, I'll take it from there, but I want to hear that kind of initial story of where you got started. Sure. So I grew up in Lagos, and I actually grew up in one of the poorest parts of Lagos. And when I was like ten, I got a, a scholarship to go to a secondary school. So it's kind of similar to high school here. Um, I'll say it's like grade six to grade twelve. It was a boarding school, and this was like with really rich kids, and so. Like on, in the summer, I go back home for holidays, and like you go to with with the poor people, like literally open sewers, and it's like and then you go to this really, really like immaculately nice school, like you know, really like some of the richest people like anywhere. They're just really rich, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you spend a lot of time thinking of you know, my parents worked hard and they were smart, but they just found it so hard to make money, and almost everywhere you know at home is similar, and people in school they just find it sort of easy to make money. And then, you, and then I went to college, and it was pretty much more of the same. <laughs> and then you, so you spend time like, why, why, why is it that some people can't just make money? And one thing I have sort of, like, my conclusion was how society decides to allocate resources has such a huge effect. Like, if you think of New York, Tokyo, London, where you have, like, capital markets, you have an idea, people can invest in it, it can grow, you can hire people. So that process is, like, magical. Like, you know, China started doing something like that in the last... 10, 15 years, and it has pulled like hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. You know, South Korea did it in the 60s and it became a first world country. You know, you can think of places like Japan, Israel. So it's very important, like how society decides those decisions of should I invest in this idea or in that idea? So markets are very important. You know, Lloyd Blankfein, he was, when I was at Goldman, he was the CEO and he said, we are doing God's work. And he got a lot of flack for that. (laughs) Well, I really believe that. So, it, it, so it's something I really believe in, and it, it sort of informs the tool we build. The tool is supposed to pull in data from the world, from the web, understand like 500,000 you know, private companies, all public companies, and help investors make better decisions of don't invest in WeWork, but invest in XYZ company or XYZ um, startup. And 
we do think like that has a huge multiplier effect in the world where you create employment, it creates wealth, people you know grow, and even like KGBs, how do you take knowledge and how do you of businesses and how do you make help them make better decisions of invest in Toronto, but maybe don't invest in like I don't know some other city. Yeah. So yeah, so so that's like so that's the driving force of like my story and how it informs like why I kind of work on the problems I work on. Uh, from that as well, going back so. Even while you're in Nigeria, then did you know that you wanted to come to the states, and how did you choose Princeton specifically? Sure. So, so I'll start with the second one because it's kind of easier. So Princeton gave me full financial aid. So that that <laughs> certainly helps. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll say, like, actually, right before, like, a year before when I was fifteen, I actually visited the U.S. for like three weeks because I won. There was this entrepreneurship program where like one person from 200 countries came together for like three weeks, like part of junior achievements. And I visited like IIT and I, you know, so, so that was when I first like got the idea that hmm, maybe I want to do this. And then, you know, I took the SATs and then I got financially to go to Princeton. And, and you know, this was when like beautiful mind around when it came out and, yeah. you know, it was, I was studying math. So, you know, John Nash, it was, it was just like Einstein worked in at Institute of Advanced Study. So it was, it was large. He had, it was like the brand was important to me. It was kind of something I cared about. And then from there as well. So I know you understand you had this kind of idea around, uh, around wealth and what you were seeing from there and went to Princeton was, was Goldman the route you knew kind of early on at Princeton where you wanted to go there or were you considering at that time at all joining, you know, a startup or uh, anything around that world? I know it's a different time a bit earlier, but I'm curious as to where you were thinking back then. Sure. So yeah. So this was like in 2008. I'll say Facebook was sort of growing really fast. But for a while, as I said, like even when I was a kid, it's hard to explain and it doesn't make any sense because I didn't even know what I was looking at. But we had like a black and white TV, and I would go and like you know stare in front of it where they are talking of markets and crude oil prices. And as I said, like you know, I really believe this idea of like investing impacts millions of people, and if you do that properly, and you don't rely on like resources, like raw materials and oil. Instead, you invest in people having ideas and other people investing in their ideas. So in other words, the work going on, then I, I was really attracted to it. Until today, I still think investing, entrepreneurship, I have sort of gotten a better appreciation for entrepreneurship and actually building the company versus just investing. But to me, like, yeah, Goldman was definitely where I wanted to go to. From there as well. So in terms of understanding, you obviously became an entrepreneur, but did you think back then too that, you would go this route eventually of, of becoming an entrepreneur or, you know, I know you mentioned you were kind of interested in other things and, and Justin, your co-founder really wanted to start companies, but was that a route you were even thinking about back then, back at the, you know, early, maybe early golden days or even, uh, you know, while you were at Princeton of like, Hey, I may, I may eventually start a company. I'm just trying to get context around it. Sure. So I'll say I was, I'm interested in business generally. So as I said, first the reason I came to the US was part of like an entrepreneurship program for kids, basically. Yeah. So I was always interested in business generally. I do think like investing is a very specific aspect of business that I'm particularly interested in. But I was always interested in business and how do you solve problems with creativity. As an entrepreneur, in many ways you are an investor as well. You're investing sweat equity, your time and resources when you have it. Um so yeah, I was always interested in that. And Greg, you had mentioned, I think, in a, a LinkedIn post or something I saw around you know the mental strain of building a startup, and you had obviously a good moment at that point when you posted. But take me through that in terms of the mental side of of building a startup. 
how has that been for you? And how do you kind of ride out the the lower points of, you know, the last number of years building a startup? How do you get through that? Sure. So I'll say definitely that's like, like, yeah. so it's definitely the most challenging things. I'll say the way I, I see it is sort of twofold. And I've sort of described the first part of like, initially, it's the ego aspect. Like without, you know, first, when you're working in a big company, you went to Princeton, your identity is like Princeton, Goldman. And in many ways, you're used to a certain level of like excellent work. When you start a company, many things are not going to go well. Like your product is not <laughs> going to be like Google's product. It's just not. And your sales, your brand. So there are many things like that, like it sort of affects your identity in many ways. And you sort of have to focus on progress. So it's less than, oh, the this is the standard. We have to be at the standard. It's more like we need to make progress every day and we need to grow. So, the, so focus on growth, growth mindset, less so on. Don't like obsess over the fact that literally you're working in your apartment and your apartment is small. When you used to work in a really nice, like high rise building kind of thing. So that's the first ego. And then the second thing is just, you know, you get, you, you be wary of burnout. So like you're constantly dealing with problems. So kind of like when things go well, people are like, you know, just just natural. Like when, you know, people work, you know, that's fine. But when things don't go well, then they come to you. So it always ends up in your desk when, you know, you know, something is not quite right. <laughs> and sort of it's like chipping over time that can sort of chip on you. So I'll say in many ways for me, it's sort of doing things I enjoy outside of work and sort of appreciation, like gratitude. Every day when I wake up now, I, you know, try to remember, like, I'm extremely lucky to be where I am. This is exactly, I, I will, right now with you is where, the perfect place where I want to be. There is nowhere else where I'd rather be than talking about startups, talking about my company. So just appreciating that I have the opportunity to do that. Um, so changing my mindset a little bit, not taking things for granted. It, it helps you get by. Yeah, I think that's really important. And you've had, obviously, a great deal of success so far with ThinkNow, but there's, and this data was is out there. It was out there even when you started. Why do you think that Thinknum has been successful in this industry? Right. So that's a good question. So I'll say a couple of things. So one is I'll say like it, our biggest competitors now are actually, let's say the big guys like Bloomberg and Reuters and people building it internally. So like hedge funds or companies trying to do that. And our view has, has sort of been like versus the big guys like Bloomberg just has a $10 billion distraction every year. Essentially, they have a great business that they have to worry about. If he's worried about alternative data right now, he's maybe insane because he just has other problems. Like he sell, makes a lot of money selling market data. So he worries about that. It's natural. But we we live and we die by this. We care about this more, this specific problem more than he ever could. And it's, it's sort of a similar thing for like the internal guys. So, you know, internally, a hedge fund might think, okay, I want to build my own. I want to build in like a, a data product versus, let's say, running a, a, a large tech company or running a, an, a hedge fund. They are two different problems. They require different cultures. So Goldman used to try to like embrace the tech culture by dressing different, but that's not really what defines culture. Culture is how do you pay people? What kinds of people do you create? What are their values? What do they care about? Um, you need a completely different culture to build a tech data product than you do to build like a hedge fund or to build like a big bank. They think differently in terms of taking risk, in terms of research, 
So in other words, we, we are trying to build the perfect culture for solving this problem. And that's why we think it We care the most and we build the culture for solving this specific problem. And ultimately, I do think that's why you win. And Greg, as well, with you as a founder of this company, what has helped you along the way You know, improve in terms of investing in yourself and being a better leader within this company over the last number of years? Because it's so difficult to build a company, and especially having getting to this point, a small number of companies will ever, ever get to this point. How have you invested in kind of yourself and making sure you can perform at your best? Sure. So, so, so the one thing, one great thing about this period is there's a lot of great content out there. You know, like Jason Lemkin puts out, you know, great like Sasta. So I, 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 you know, I read a lot about that. There are lo- lots of great books that I read. So I, I focus a lot on like learning, and I, you, you have to believe that you have to invest, as you said, invest in that and invest in, like, you know, as you can, as you get better at managing yourself, managing your productivity, managing your emotions, managing how you think about product, managing how you think about building a company. It has an effect on your company. So. I'll say for me, that's been it. Like there's just a lot of content. And that's kind of a big reason why I wanted to do this because I do think it matters to like share. Your, I don't think, you know, I used to think like, oh, like, well, maybe when I make like X, Y, Z, I'm going to <laughs> think like it's great that on the internet, people are sharing their journey and I've benefited a lot from that. And if I can contribute, that'd be great. Was there anything, uh, yeah, I know you mentioned Jason Lemkin and Saster, any other particular resources or any other particular books as well? Because I love having kind of that for other people to be able to share that. Sure. So I'll say the one book I'll, I sort of live by is The Score Takes Care of Itself. Write that down. <laughs> Perfect. Why that book? So first of all, I love sports. And so essentially this was by a sort of like a coach like Bill Walsh. And he used to be his successful football coach I, I don't really like football but I, I love sports and he uses a lot of analogies like that so it just resonates with me like essentially you, it, the, his basic thesis is that you don't really focus on the score like how do I get more points instead you focus on the process how do I get better at playing how do I get up specific drills how do I get better at practice how do I get better at preparing all the things you can that are under your control and then sort of magically you just score more points like if you're fitter, if you're running better plays, if you you just score more points. So if you obsess over results, then your emotions will vary every day. Maybe you get lucky and you win, maybe you don't. But if you focus on process that you can control, you can learn about, you can learn how do I recruit better engineers, how do I build a better you know, marketing machine, then you'll get better results eventually. And on that note of, you mentioned earlier, productivity as well. I'd be curious, Greg, take me through what a kind of a day in the life, this is obviously pandemic times, so maybe a little bit different, but from, you know, what time you wake up to when you go to bed, what what's kind of a day look like? Obviously, it's going to be different because it's it's a startup life. So, you know, it could be different every day, but in terms of how you look at kind of structuring your day to be productive and what the things are you do, I'd be curious to know a bit about that. Sure. So I usually wake up at six o'clock. Three days a week, I work out before I start the work the work day, and then we have an 8 a.m. meeting with all the engineers, and then we everybody talks about what they're working on, and then from then on, I you know do some meetings or write some code, and, and that's pretty much the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a specific time that you stop working, or how do you structure that? Deciding on when when you've done for the day. Sure. So I usually go to like I basically stop working for essentially dinner. And then after dinner, like let's say like seven to nine, I, I do some very, very light work, like basically sending emails and things like that. And then that's pretty much it. 
And just to dive deeper, because this is just always kind of fascinating to me. I'm always trying to optimize. Um, do you end up working most weekends, take weekends off, take a day off on the weekend, kind of casually just see how it goes at work? I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs about this and gotten a number of different opinions. I'm just curious as to how you structure your weekends too, Greg. Right. So so I usually work weekends. Yeah. <laughs> like So I work weekends, but I play soccer on Saturday and sometimes on Sunday. And when I was younger, so this was like maybe three years ago, I used to be able to play soccer and <laughs> work after. Now I kind of have to take like a three-hour nap. So between playing soccer and taking a three-hour nap, I end up working maybe like five hours Saturday, Sunday. But I usually work weekends. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of inevitable with with just getting staying ahead, especially at a startup, and really the pressure that's on you from that that point as well. And at this point, so you again being. Passive raising funding again in last year, and now we're in we're in twenty twenty and and moving forward. What is the big vision for Thinkdom? So as I said, it's very much about like winning the market and building a team to do that. That's kind of like as I said, I'm focused on recruiting and like building team to take it to the next level. So it, there are many like let's say in engineering, there are many problems that let's say one person solves. How do you split that off into like three different roles that each person can do excellently? And build a team from there. Like we are building like the business of business.com. It's a sort of a media publication. We're going to do like a short, like five minute movie, for example, talking about lessons of building a business and like in this case, Airbnb's case, and that's supposed to you know grow that media operation and just hiring more sales people and BDRs. So it's very much like blocking and tackling and just building a company. Yeah, all the nitty gritty details that go into that. <laughs> There's so many things, so many things. And one of the last things I'm just just curious about. I know we've, we've talked about books, talked about uh, a number of different things around productivity as well, and kind of how you're investing yourself. But looking to then the future, are there other other things that you personally are excited about, looking forward to? Um, so I'll, I'll say you know, like I, I sort of briefly described it, but we are working on like a, a this short video that tells the story of like Airbnb and the lesson from that. So there's a lesson where like, it's called like do things that don't scale. So I'll just briefly go over it. So the founders, they weren't having traction, Brian Chesky and co. And then they realized they were having traction with a small segment of people who like have really nice pictures as hosts. So these founders actually started booking their Airbnb rooms and going and taking professional pictures. And from there it grew. So like just founders, like actually going and taking pictures in order to grow a tech company, to me, it seemed very counterintuitive, but it's a lesson like do things that will scale, get your hands dirty. So we want to, how do you sort of expand this business knowledge of building a company? And so we're going to reenact that whole thing. So, you know, you're getting a producer, a director, budgets. So it's kind of creative work. I'm not leading it. Someone else in the company is, but that has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I think creating content, having that creativity side of it, and just creative out expression in some capacity is 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 great and just enjoyable. Uh, obviously, I'm doing a lot of that in many ways with the podcast, and even trying to think of in a similar way. I'm looking at starting in the second podcast, kind of sharing more of those specific stories from from the from just go grind because people have such fascinating like, stories and how they got to the point where they're at even like the little snippets of a few minutes long that are beneficial for other founders who are curious as to how to build a company and obviously it's ever-changing environment there's going to be a lot of different companies that end up coming you know starting and especially with something like thinknum with the data you guys are providing it'll be interesting to see how that 
evolves in terms of one investors using it, but also even just other founders being like, oh, where are there you know opportunities to build companies based on this data as well? Yes, certainly. Certainly. Like And Greg, where can people go to learn more about all that you're working on and connect with you as well? So I think thinknum.com. So thinknum.com and there'll be an about section or you can find me on LinkedIn, Greg Rilgui. Well, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.